You're listening to the Unsiloed Podcast with Greg LeBlanc, brought to you by alumni.fm. Unsiloed is a series of interdisciplinary conversations that inspire new ways of thinking about our world. So wherever you are today, enjoy today's episode, and here's your host, Greg LeBlanc. Welcome to Unsiloed. This is Greg LeBlanc, and I'm here with Rita McGrath, who is a professor at Columbia Business School and the author of, uh, well, in addition to numerous articles in Harvard Business Review and elsewhere, uh, a number of wonderful books, including Discovery Driven Growth, The Entrepreneurial Mindset, and of course, The End of Competitive Advantage, and most recently, Seeing Around Corners. Fantastic books, and probably focus on the last two books, but everything you've done is cumulative, and so I don't think we'll be able to avoid talking about you know some of your earlier ideas. So welcome, Rita. It's a pleasure to be here. Thank you for inviting me. In the book, uh, End of Competitive Advantage, you say that uh, strategy is stuck. Now, and I think this was a couple of years ago, but I, I don't think that events have happened so quickly in the world of strategy that strategy has all of a sudden become unstuck. So when you said that, what did you mean exactly? And I think for a lot of people in this audience, they're familiar with the kind of the basic concepts of strategy. But if you want to go back in time and review the Michael Porter view set viewpoint and like, how did we wind up getting stuck in this idea of pursuing sustainable competitive advantage? I think the field of strategy, like any business, got started at a particular point in historical time, which I would pin to the late 60s, early 70s, maybe. And if you think about it, the containerization only happened in 1956. That was the thing that made global trade eventually enabled. Certainly, the information revolution was years into the future. At that time, a lot of Europe was still recovering from the devastating effects of the Second World War, as was Japan. China wasn't playing on the world stage. India was closed. So my point is that American and, to some extent, European firms had a much quieter life than they would experience later on. And I think the work that was done at the time in strategy was brilliant. What Porter and others figured out was that you could actually take the laws of monopoly and turn them on their head. And if you could do that, then you achieved monopoly-like returns, which were surpassed returns that you would get on an ordinary basis. And it was absolutely brilliant work. And just take something very familiar to most of your listeners, like the five forces model. If you could identify a space in an industry where you didn't have much competition, there were no substitutes, where you had tremendous power over buyers and suppliers and where the rate of rivalry was low, then yeah, that was a recipe to make a lot of money. So fast forward to today, and the world is a really different place. So some of the key differences are we're no longer competing cleanly in industries. We're no longer able to look at product and service attributes as the primary driver of of advantage. Instead, what we're looking at is networks and ecosystems and complementary relationships I'm working on a strategy textbook right now, and so I've picked up the ones that exist. And honestly, they have not changed much since 1970. They've got more updated examples, but a lot of the frameworks are still the same. So I argue that we really need a different way of looking at the reality that is strategy for many of us. When I teach strategy, I'll introduce things like five forces at the very beginning of the course, and and then I'll start hopefully taking them apart and supplementing them and complementing them as we go through the course. But then at the end of the class, when people are doing their projects, it seems that they love to go back to these models. There's a certain level of, of comfort with this perspective. And and I think you you highlight that historically, the whole field of strategy and, and the field of innovation, these were different fields and they're different academically. And then within organizations, it's like you have 
different parts of the organization are, are dedicated to these different things, if indeed you have part of the organization devoted to, to innovation. So how is it that everything about a company, its its entire organizational structure and culture and everything is aligned with this view of creating a sustainable competitive advantage and doing everything to you know ward off anything that could disrupt it? Why is that the case? There are a lot of vested interests in keeping things as they are. If you think about it, in a world where things move more slowly, You didn't need innovation every day. God help you. You wanted it once in a while when you needed to bring something new in the world. And then the job of most of the company would be to exploit that advantage. And in the not-for-profit world, same thing. Your job was to do something that you'd learned to do very effectively. When you think about the field of strategy, when, when I first started in the field of strategy, the cool kids were all using the profit impact of market studies database to do things like order of entry analysis and what was the effect of market share on industry profitability and strategic groups. And in other words, they were looking at the outsides of firms and at the industry level of analysis very often. Those of us studying innovation by definition were looking at the insides of firms and the decisions and actions made by individuals. And so we were a much smaller group of us and huddled in the corner for warmth. And I think what's happened as innovation itself has moved more to the conversation, at least, if not the action yet, is those two fields are becoming increasingly blurred. And I would add that the digital revolution is making that even more profound. So today you really can't talk about strategy without talking about innovation. And I would argue you can't talk about innovation without some element of digital entering into it as a general rule. I thought you made a very interesting point about kind of the relationship between assumptions and and knowledge, right? And I guess the traditional strategy is works best in in fields where there's quite a bit of quite a bit of knowledge, and that analytics and a scientific approach and an empirical approach is something that's actually a reasonable exercise. But in the world of innovation, it's very difficult because you don't have this established data on which to do a whole lot of analytics. How do you think about the relationship between kind of assumptions and and frameworks and knowledge? couple of different ways. So the first thing is, I would say the scientific approach is actually what you want with innovation. You want to be able to formulate hypotheses and then figure out a way to test them as cheaply and rapidly as possible. The dilemma that I have with people who insist on a lot of data before making a big decision is that so much of the data that they're using is lagging. It's great information, but it's about stuff that's already happened. And so what I try to get people to really focus on is give me the leading indicators. Give me the thing that tells me today whether tomorrow is likely to be a happier place or not, because that's what I want to influence. So just to take a concrete example at Microsoft, as they've moved more and more of their business to the cloud, as Satya Nadella has said, look, our future is going to be determined by usage. In a software as a service business, if people don't use your software, they don't pay you. So what drives usage? Customer love. And if we're going to get customer love, we have to have empathy for our customers, which when you think about historical Microsoft is a pretty surprising thing for them to say, but that really has caused them to shift their attention and start listening and really think about how can we get that customer engagement so that we get usage so that eventually we get the profits and revenue we want. And too few companies think about leading indicators. When I was reading that section of the book, Seeing Around Corners, I was thinking about this phrase, which I hear all the time, which is people don't change or organizations don't change when they see the light. They only change when they feel the heat. And so you describe a series of situations where where companies realize that they have to have all hands on deck to undergo some radical transformation. And then they need to have get rid of this division and, and go through some kind of wrenching punctuated change. And you offer an alternative, which is that organizations that are successful in this world of transient competitive advantage, they don't have these kind of whipsaw 
reorgs, but instead they're in this constant state of evolution. Why is it that so many companies have this very punctuated whipsaw form of reaction to, to what's happening in the external world? I would say the overarching reason is because they have very static systems. I mean, if you think about your budgeting system, for example, uh, typically it's still not unusual for that to be an annual exercise where variance from budget is seen as a bad thing and where people go out of their way to avoid the numbers looking bad. And the dilemma with that is, first of all, a year's a really long time in today's world. Secondly, if you insist on a low variance situation, people are going to be very conservative in what they predict. So they'll try to stay within their safe zone. And finally, if you punish variance, then, you know, people aren't going to try to hide them. And so you're not going to get critical information that may be absolutely essential to the seeds of whatever your organization needs to pay attention to. So there are many systems like that, right? Your budgeting system, your HR system, compliance, legal. And these things have all grown up in support of the business that is or the business that was. And so you have to learn to adjust them if you're going to move into the future. And let's just start with budgeting. I've been working a lot with the Beyond Budgeting Institute, which has a much more flexible approach to thinking about how you dynamically readjust your resource allocations over time. And I think that's where we're all going to be moving to. The idea that you could actually forecast a year out to the penny what you're going to need or what's going to be called upon you to use to react is absurd when you think about it. So if we could do it in much more real time, do it much more dynamically, that gets you in motion. And it's the being in motion that stops you from having these horrible moments when everything breaks and now you've got to fire the left-hand side of the building, that kind of thing. Yeah, I think your emphasis on budgeting is really spot on. There's uh, this is just a process that every organization has to go through, and yet it becomes an arena for, for vested interests and politics. And we're both at universities, and universities tend to use these very rigid budgeting systems. And as you point out, no one, virtually no manager is ever going to stand up and say, yeah, I think I need less budget this year, right? Not typically. Yeah. Well. And I think this is another big problem that we've got, which is that even today, we struggle to figure out ways of incenting people that don't have to do with bigger budgets, more staff, larger spans of control. Uh, so, you know, if you're an individual genius contributor who creates billions of dollars worth of value because you've made some kind of breakthrough, we don't know what to do with you. And some companies have figured this out, but most haven't. And so what ends up happening is these geniuses either kind of get kept in a cave somewhere metaphorically, and, and they're not really connected to the rest of the organization, or they create a really separate track for them, individual contributors. But it's a struggle. It's a real struggle. So one of the other assumptions I think that you are challenging that's in the traditional literature is this whole idea of an industry. And I think when we look at a Google or we look at an Amazon or we look at an Apple, it's really hard to even talk about what industry they're, they're in. And instead you, you use this idea of an arena. And one, one thing that I hadn't thought of before was I always talk about business as being like a game of chess or multidimensional chess. And you said, no, no, it's like a game of go that kind of helps you think through this arena concept. Could you talk a bit about that? What do you, what do you mean by an arena? Sure. So I define an arena as comprising of a couple of elements. So there is a source of resources, which is typically a customer. It can be other constituencies as well. And the people and entities that control those resources have jobs they want to get done in their lives. And this was a concept very famously created by Tony Olwick and Clayton Christensen. And there are different players vying for the pot of resources dedicated to that job to be done. And if you don't understand what decisions are being made around where those resources are going to go, you're really going to miss something. So let's take an example near and dear to my heart. Let's take the wedding business. If you think about it, people getting married are typically in their 20s and 30s, their first marriage anyway. 
And we've had a really pent up demand for weddings over the last year or two. They've been downsized, they've been smaller, they've been postponed. And that same population is the population of people who are also going to try to use their resources to buy computers and cell phones and apparel and their first used car. And so if you think about it, every dollar that goes into a wedding is a dollar that's not going to be available for something else. And so weddings and cars are actually competing with each other. So if you think about your arena in those terms, what you start to realize is that it requires a much more nuanced sense of who's my real competition. And it's really important to remember the most significant competition most of us will face is the choice on the part of the person that has the resources to do absolutely nothing. Well, this is what Reed Hastings says that his biggest competitor is, is sleep. He's got to exactly. figure out how to get people to sleep less. Spirit <laughs> oh. of the arena thinking. I'm not saying industry thinking is completely useless. There's something to be said for knowing what's what, say, in aerospace or defense or something. What I'm just encouraging people not to do is just compare themselves to others looking just like them and not look more broadly at who their key stakeholders are, who their key constituents are. You're talking about in, in this book, in both books, it really is about how do you set up an, an architecture for continuous change. So I know when I teach the Intel case, there, there's always this debate from the Harvard cases. Did they move from DRAM into microprocessor as a result of Andy Grove up on high saying we need to do this? Or was it a result of a system which allowed for the gradual transitioning from this business which had diminishing return on investment to one that was had a better opportunity? And that seems to be always the debate. I think you're arguing that in order for you to continuously develop, there has to be some stability that you can't, the organization cannot be chaotic. It has to be ordered. There has to be intentionality around this evolution. And you highlight some of the key attributes that the organization has to have that, that keep that stable architecture in place. Could, could you talk about the processes and the, and the cultural elements that, that lend stability to these organizations? It's a really great point because I think in all the craziness that's around us, I think we forget that human beings don't do very well when faced with just massive amounts of uncertainty. We tend to freeze in the headlights and we we lack the courage to take a lot of action. So I think it's really important to have that stability. So I did a bunch of research on firms who I called the growth outliers. And out of something like 7,000 publicly traded firms, these were 10 that had managed to grow their revenue by at least 5% a year for 10 years in a row. And I was deliberately looking for outliers. So I wasn't looking for central tendencies. I was looking for the ones, the really rare ones that got it right over a pretty long period of time. And what I found was stability in values, stability actually in their core strategies, like what was their purpose on the planet? Why did they exist? A lot of stability in leadership. They tended to have multiple members of their leadership team both come from within and be in role for quite a long uh, period of time. Now, what did they have that was dynamic? Budgeting, very dynamic. The movement of people around the organization, what you saw was if somebody had been in operations, maybe they would next take a role in marketing, or maybe they would do a different geography. Not too quickly, but on a sort of two to three year cadence. You saw quite a lot of that. So by the time they got to become very senior leaders, they had a really good feel for different parts of the organization and how it worked. You saw this fascinating kind of combination of dynamism and stability in those firms. And I thought that was interesting. One of the things they do really well is disengage from things where the opportunities exhausted. And one of my favorite characters in this 
particular story is a guy named Sanjay Purohit, who was the former chief strategy officer at Infosys. And they rank their managers on margin and they rank them on growth. And if you your growth slows and your margin goes down, you actually get not punished. You're certainly not going to do as well as if you were in the right shape on those things. And in a sort of ironic way, what that actually creates is a situation you were talking about before, where a leader would come to Sanjay and he'd say, I got too many people for the opportunities I'm working on right now. Can you redeploy them somewhere else? What company does that ever happen? But because they architected that incentive system right down to the level of the individual team, they aligned the incentive of using these people where they could best be used. And Lou Gerstner very famously said, you know, great companies put their best people on opportunities. Typical companies put their best people on problems. Yeah. And this idea of disengaging, right? You said there's no textbooks on stopping, right? Maybe this is uh, this is the beginnings of a textbook, I think, on on, on stopping and, and presumably in your new textbook on strategy, hopefully you will have a whole chapter on on, on stopping or, or exiting. And, and you walk through all these different ways that, that companies can exit. So maybe you could talk about that, because I think when I, ta- I teach course on, on venture finance and I like to say that the venture way of thinking, as opposed to, say, the CFO way of thinking is they're not particularly good at identifying good opportunities, but they're really good at identifying bad opportunities and killing them early. In your work, you're talking about this idea of grazing on options, which is sort of, you know, killing these opportunities relatively early when you discover that they don't really have any potential. But then there's this whole idea of killing things that have run their course or phasing them out or getting rid of them or sailing off into the, to the sunset. So why is it that strategic managers are so bad at, at, at pulling the plug on stuff? And when they do pull the plug on stuff, they do it maybe in a non-intentional way. I think the first reason is human. If you've been part of something for a long time, it's very hard to say it's time has come and gone and it's time to say goodbye. There's a political element. Anything that's been around for a while in a company has people who benefit by it being in the world and they're going to resist seeing it go away. Sometimes it's customer pressure. Customers don't change any more than companies do. And sometimes they'll pressure a company into sticking with a business model or a plan or a concept much longer than they should. So there's a lot of these inertial forces that create uh, the pressure to, to keep going. And this, I think you can combat with a certain you know, distance. You know, and this is really gets to the heart of your governance process, right? Which is if you do a portfolio review of what's in your portfolio and is it still fit for purpose? And you do that relatively rigorously and you can agree on the criteria ahead of time. What that starts to flag up is, okay, we need to look at this. We can't just assume everything is going to go on. We have to assume that some things are going to go away so that we can fund other things. Another thing that public companies especially really struggle with, and this is something Jeff Moore and I have talked about a lot, is uh, what he calls the J-curve. And, you know, we have this mental image of great leaders are taking their companies and they're moving swiftly from S-curve to S-curve. And what we forget is there's that piece in the middle where performance actually goes down before you get on the next growth. And that applies at the level of a company. It applies at the level of a product. Jeff Bezos talks about this. He says, people congratulate me for having had a great quarter at Amazon. And I say, thank you. And I'm polite. But the thing I'm thinking is that's the most idiotic thing I've ever heard. The quarter we just had is a reflection of decisions we made three and four years ago. So part of the skill of being able to disengage is you you have to keep your core business you know, healthy enough to cover the cost of the J. And that J has to be good enough to cover the cost of the, when it turns into an S, it has to be able to cover the cost of the next J. And that's a calculus that's really hard. And uh, I'm doing some work on corporate transformation right now. And one of the things you find is people just 
are not willing, firstly, to devote the time. They're impatient. A guy comes in to turn a business around and if it hasn't changed in nine months, they're like, what's going on, dude? You haven't done your job. And it's like, this problem took 10 years to build up and you want to fix it in nine months. It's just humanly, there's only so fast things can go. And so I think it's very interesting how unrealistic key stakeholders can be when you're in a very dynamic environment. This is kind of like an agency problem, right? Because if whoever's initiating the change, they don't have a very easy way of communicating what the long-term prospects are of what they're attempting to do. And so the the principal is always going to evaluate them based on real-time or backward-looking KPIs, right? So you covered the Reed Hastings example. When he decided to transition, there was a lot of pushback from customers, pushback from shareholders. Stock price took a serious nosedive. And if Hastings was responding only to the local signals and, and the local rewards and incentives, then he would have you know abandoned that whole initiative and just stuck to DVDs. And none of us would be sitting here talking about Netflix. <laughs> Potentially. So I think what skilled leaders are able to do is paint a picture for their people, paint a picture for the analysts, paint a picture about the future. And I've actually got some new work I've been doing on a metric my colleague and I call the imagination premium. And it basically says for a publicly traded company, you can judge how much of their value comes from just operating, just the cash flow they produce every year reliably and so forth. Now, if they're worth more than that's the premium that shareholders will give a company because they think it's got good growth prospects. And what we do is we actually create a ratio where we take the value of the operations and divide it by the value of growth. And that gives you this ratio, which is a premium. So if it's one, that means growth and operations are valued about the same. If it's more than one, that means your investors are sort of saying, yeah, 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 cash flow, that's fine. But I really think you're a good growth bet. This is the reason that Amazon had permission to basically produce, you know, no profits, no problem for years because they rewarded their shareholders with an uptick in the share price. So I do think that we are long overdue for a reimagining of what investors look for. I mean, if you think of entire sectors, biotech, biotech went 25 years before anybody in that sector produced a profit. Investors nonetheless were willing to take those risky bets because they expected there to be the outsized returns. And so I think there's a nuance to this that a lot of corporate leaders don't understand. Now, I think it's an excuse when they say, oh, I have to make the quarter. I can't do that innovation thing. And I've spoken to analysts about this and they're like, no, what we're looking for is evidence this quarter that you are on a path. Now, if you screw up that we're on a path story, then yes, we're going to ding you. But if you tell the story, we're on a path, this is the roadmap and bring us along with you. There's plenty of willingness to invest in the long term. I find no evidence to support among the analyst community, a resistance to a well-told story. So it can go the other way as well. So BP, Beyond Petroleum, has a new CEO and he's telling everybody, this time we really mean it and we're getting out of fossil fuels, we're going beyond petroleum. And a lot of the analysts are just looking at each other, rolling their eyes and go, yeah, we've heard that before. They don't believe it. So he's going to have to now, what he has to do is demonstrate steps along a compelling path to that outcome. They're not going to punish him if he can create that belief. But when if you don't have a good growth story or you don't tell it well, that's when you get dinged. This tool that you're developing, is this one that's just going to simply decompose the stock price as it is? Or could you use this as a way of doing valuation? so that oh, you can forecast stock price. We're playing around with using it as a leading indicator. And there's an article, in fact, coming out in Strategy and Business in the May-June issue, which describes it. And the example that we use in the article is Coca-Cola. So Coca-Cola entered the Mukhtar Kent in the early teens with a big problem. The brand, the big brand were mature. Consumers were moving towards more natural, smaller niche brands, things that weren't carbonated. And the distributors didn't want to play along. The bottlers didn't want to play along. Kent had to do a lot of financial engineering to just clean all that stuff up. And so what you found was Coke's Imagination Premium kind of tootled along. Its uh, cash 
flow due to operations was very strong because it was still a very strong operating company, but people really didn't see the growth. They saw a lot of cleanup. And now they've got a relatively new CEO. And here's what's interesting. Coke's revenue has gone down in this period. Their imagination premium and their stock price has gone up because investors are now saying, okay, we get it. Less revenue, different kind of revenue, but we believe in the growth story that you're telling. And it's fascinating. into the nuts and bolts of how, how companies make these decisions. You mentioned kind of the NPV tyranny. Okay. And I think that's something which a lot of people talk about. And, you know, as a person who's originally a finance person, I used to bristle at this and now I'm the one that's also preaching it at the same time. But you say that in the world of venture, entrepreneurs, they spend their imagination before they spend their money. And I was wondering if you could, you could talk a little bit about that, that metaphor. And you talk about parsimony and how you have to be very stingy with the money that you invest in, in innovation. I was wondering if you could elaborate on that. Like, how do you put in place a, a mechanism for allocating these these resources? How do we implement some of these policies? Sure. So I think the first challenge, and different companies will locate this activity in different places, depending on their structure. I think the first challenge is very few companies have a transparent, readily agreed upon mechanism for seeing what is in their portfolio. And so what you find if over time is you have your strategy, which when it's done, it's pulling you into the future, right? This is our point of view about the future. This is where we want to go. Budget process holds you back, right? Then you've got your project approval process. And often the people making those decisions aren't part of either strategy or budget. And then you've got your people and your people are being incentivized from four strategies ago. And so the first big dilemma of being able to do this is how do you get a clear line of sight into your portfolio to begin with? And it has to start there. Then you've got a growth board or ops committee or whatever people call this thing. And you want this group to have real chops. So they have to have real power in the organization. They have to have control of a dedicated pool of resources, which isn't going to get sniffed away by the core business the minute it has some kind of problem. And you want them to have a disciplined way of navigating as these programs or projects hit their key checkpoints. And so the idea is instead of having a date-focused review cycle, you have a checkpoint review focus cycles, well, very much the way venture capitalists, good ones anyway, put money into ventures, right? You don't spend all your money on the first round, you spend a quarter of it maybe. And then the ones that survive get additional tranches of funding. And that's the, the same kind of spirit you want to have inside the corporation. So one of the more exciting things I am working on is some software that makes it easier to do this, makes it easier to figure out what you've got in there, collectively score them, you know, on a couple of different dimensions, and then manage the checkpoints as you're working your way through. So we'll see if it works, but I have high hopes because I think it's such a pain point for so many organizations. Yeah. I love this term, uh, innovation governance. Thinking about that as, I think normally we think about governance in this with respect to other aspects of the business, but an innovation is glued on top of the governance. But you talk about innovation governance and you also kind of reference the idea that there's all these organizations that are just full of ideas and there's just ideas popping up and ideas are, are bubbling to the surface and they pop like bubbles and then descend back down into the ground. And is the innovation governance process something which you can engineer? And how do you audit the innovation governance process within, a, within an organization? Oh, there's a bunch of things that you can look for. So there's some archetypes. So I'll give a couple of archetypes. Under Lou Gerstner, IBM had a terrific program they called the Emerging Business Opportunity Program. Mm -hmm. And essentially what they had was a guy named Ralph. Hamer, who reported directly to Palmasano, who reported directly to Gerstner. And Hamer's full-time job was looking after these hefty innovation programs, these hefty innovation ideas that IBM was trying to get into. And if there was any cut in budget or anything that would move people out of these innovation projects, they had to come and explain themselves, like what was going on. And so you created this 
power at the staff level, senior staff level, where all it provided connection and authority and protection for these innovation ventures. So they weren't allowed to get sucked into business as usual. So that's one approach. Another approach is what they did at Nokia for years when their venturing program was quite effective. They set up something called the NVO or Nokia Ventures Organization. And the governance there was pretty much the similar to the governance of the whole organization, but NVO was specifically for ideas that didn't fit into the existing business units or serve the existing business customers. And the way they charted that was they had what they called V stages or venture stages. And so V1 was a stage in which you could write your idea or write the concept on a two-page document. And if somebody thought it was interesting on this committee, you could get maybe 10,000 euro to go play with it. But it's just an idea at this point. And what you're doing is constructing a hypothesis. And you may find that idea led to another idea, which would be a second V1. Eventually, if you got enough understanding, you wrote a V2 proposal. And a V2 proposal was the transition at which point the thing became an actual project. It had a dedicated team, it had some full-time people, and it was now really in the pipeline of things that were being worked on. And if V2 worked out, and most of the time it didn't, if V2 worked out, you got to be V3. And that was commercial launch. And that could be a million euros or more. But what I thought was fascinating was there was this rich understanding in the organization that you align your budget allocation with the amount of uncertainty you've got. And so it creates that pressure in those early stages to come to some result with a very limited amount of resources. What happened? Because I know you were working with uh, Nokia, Mm -hmm. I think, until 2006. And then when you went back and revisited, there was some changes that place yeah, which I mean, kind of stifled that process. What happened? Uh, basically, a CEO who with a finance background came in and did not support this idea of these uncertain things, started to put P&L responsibility on your venturing organization, which is like the kiss of death, didn't have much patience for the creative, crazy scientist types, didn't want to take a lot of risk. He saw their proficiency as really being able to produce millions of phones a minute. And, you know, they missed a lot. Like, I remember I was up in Ulu or somewhere in 2004, maybe, and holding in my hand this, what we would recognize today isn't a tablet. It had a stylus, but it connected to the internet and you could load apps on it. And it was everything that the iPhone and app economy is today. And they had it. They had built it. It existed. And yet the resource allocation process at Nokia at that time was just too risk averse to say, we're going to get this thing into the market. One of the surprising backstories to me of the Nokia story is When I first started working with them, which would have been around the year 1999, 2000, there was a thing they called the Nokia Communicator, and it did 70% of what a smartphone today does. You could go to the internet, it kept your calendar, it had a little flashlight, (laughs) you know, it did all that stuff. And so if any company had to be what the Apple iPhone economy is today, it would have been Nokia. And yet it's those internal practices that just snuffed it all out. Well, we're going to have to talk about this whole idea of MBAs and how they can sometimes screw up companies because we're in the business of making them. We have to take some responsibility. There's a concept that you introduced of technology debt, which I really liked. There's technical debt. I think everyone knows what knows what that is. But you have this idea of resources as hostages and concrete shoes and the things that, that hold you back and how important it is to free the hostages. Maybe you can elaborate on that metaphor and, and how that illustrates some of the things you've been talking about. Organizations develop these resource allocation processes for a reason. They need to support existing businesses. But what can happen if you don't have some central way of pulling resources to where they're most needed is they get to be held, as you said, hostage in divisions or in under the control of powerful heads of business. And so what often needs to happen is you have to have someone, typically it's the CEO, but it might be the head of strategy or the head of growth, who's basically able to establish a tax, right? The lines of business heads have a tax they have to pay to support whatever the new businesses are. And of course, that's politically very difficult. It's very contentious. It can be. But if you don't do that, what ends up happening is you have these resources that are trapped in yesterday's business. 
difference. If you're going from, I'll just make this up, iPod to iPhones, and all the money is tied up with the iPod people, you're never going to get a, a phone is never going to see the light of day. So someone, and in the case of Apple, obviously it was Jobs, but someone has to have a mechanism to do that. One of the things they did at Lego, which was very powerful, was they said at the end of every budget year, all the operating people would have to operate with 10% less. And that 10% then went to a central resource allocation committee. And if you made a great case that you had a great opportunity, it would come back to you, but it would come back to you for growth, not for maintaining operations. Measure this. There, you know, the concept of operating leverage is, is a useful concept that we use all the time. And here, this idea of, okay, there's all the resources are just basically locked up and they're, and they're dedicated to this existing legacy stuff. And so it really doesn't release those resources that you need to acquire the options. How much of the cash flow is improved? imprisoned or held hostage. That would be a good leading indicator, I think. You know, David Cody, who just recently stepped down as CEO of Honeywell, has a very interesting rubric that he uses. He says, what I try to do is keep operating expenses flat or lower and grow revenue. And if you can get those two ratios, it has the effect of squeezing what is and forcing people to grow into what could be. And he's, his turnaround there was remarkable. Now, at the, be- the very beginning of this book, I think it begins where this one ends, which is really this whole idea of looking for these leading indicators and knowing when the options need to be acquired and when they need to be exercised. And you start off with this metaphor that snow melts from the edges. And I think you related to this concept of blind spots, which I think part of the organizational routine that is put into place by our MBAs who are executing on this idea of building out and maintaining their competitive advantage is that they necessarily build these blind spots that you advocate need to be disrupted. Could you talk a bit about how can leaders access these leading indicators? Because necessarily it means that they have to divert attention away from the other things that they've been focusing on. So I think the first principle is you have to make time for it. If you spend mm-hmm. your entire day doing emails and sitting in meetings, obviously that's what you're making the time for. And you're not going to make the time for the anomaly or the thing that's, gee, nobody ever said that before. Or you go and actually watch a customer interaction and cringe. So I think being aware that you need to make the time for it, because if you don't make the time for it, nobody else is going to. People are not stupid. They'll see what you value as a leader and do what. So you have to make the time for it. Then there are some practices that you can deploy on a regular basis. So skip level meetings. Go talk to people who are from the future. If you want to know, for example, what the 20-year-olds of 10 years from now are going to be like, guess what? They're all alive and well, and they're 10 years old. So when was the last time you talked to a 10-year-old? And things like that. So it's going, pushing yourself to go to places that are diverse, that are not necessarily conforming to your pre-existing beliefs. And as Steve Blank likes to say, there are no answers in the building. You have to get out of the building and see what's going on. And even if we have to do it virtually, I think there's still benefit in putting yourself in a position where you could find contradictory information to what you believe. A great question is, what would have to be true for my current assumption to not hold? What would I have to be able to observe? And when you start asking people those kinds of questions, they look at the world in a different way. Now, I remember when I was in business school, I read this book. I can't remember the name of it, but it was about Ross Perot when he joined the General Motors board and how he he went to visit the factory. And he was apparently the first member of the board to ever set foot in, in a factory. And they also talked about how they had a maintenance crew in the garage of headquarters that would change the oil of all the executives' cars like every day or something like this. So they never actually knew that their cars were unreliable. And they never knew that their factories had horrible. And oh, so, one of my favorite know. stories is I was, this was years ago when T-Mobile was a firm that was an early version of mobile phones, but it was, they were famous for having a bad network, just a terrible network. The coverage was awful. They were cheap, but you got what you paid for in that case. And you may remember for years, Verizon ran on the fact that they had 
had a more reliable network. So I happened to have a guy from T-Mobile, which was owned by Deutsche Telekom, in my class. And he was telling me, just casually over drinks or something, that, you know, oh, one of his executives was coming to visit. And I said, oh my God, what are you going to do when this person comes here and just learns how awful the service really is? And he looked at me with big round eyes and he says, oh, that's not going to happen. I said, what do you mean? He said, you know, we know when he's arriving, we know what routes he's going to be on, we know where we've got his schedule, we've got all his meetings and his signal is going to be terrific. And so you can only imagine this guy goes back to Germany. He's like, what are all these Americans whining about? It was perfect. Yeah. But there's one way to do it, which is you do the undercover boss and that sort of thing and start perusing Glassdoor and so forth. But there's other ways of building in systems, right? Where you instrument the edges, right? You formalize this process of data gathering. You mentioned like the kickbox campaign Mm -hmm. or even having good quality information systems that give leaders a dashboard to what's really going on. And rather than relying on kind of the reports that go up through the, through the traditional channels, Mm -hmm. are there any best practices here for systematizing this? rather than just allowing serendipitous exploration. Steve Blank, when he says get outside the building, he's not advocating you go for a walk in the park. He's saying, go find those people who are most likely to be your customers and interrogate them about your prototype. Yeah. So a couple of ways people do this, and I think to do this well, and Amy Edmondson talks about this. So she says there's a continuum of surprises and failures, which we often don't make clear enough. So there's failures that should not happen. Somebody overlooked something, somebody messed up. Those are not to be rewarded and ideally not repeated. And then there are failures that simply occur because there was so much uncertainty. You couldn't possibly have foretold that, right? You're a travel company in December of 2019 or something. And then there's this category of failures in the middle. And these often are a function of complex systems where somebody could make an honest mistake. It it isn't necessarily that they should have known better. It's that the system interacted in such a way that this produced this outcome. And she uses examples such as misprescribing medicines or operating on the wrong side of a patient's body and that kind of thing. And in those cases, what you absolutely want is brutal candor, absolute honesty about what happened. And if you look at high reliability, reliability systems like air traffic control, air flying, why is it so safe? It's so safe because they, everybody who's a participant is required to report on things that were out of order and they don't get punished for it. They get punished if they don't report. And so you need to put in place this system of incentives, which means anybody who has that valuable piece of information not only feels comfortable letting you know, but they feel an obligation to bring it forward to decision makers. And most companies don't do that. There's a wonderful book that features Jeff Immelt at General Electric. And I don't think this was intentional, but if you were in his orbit, like you knew what drink he liked, you knew what temperature he liked the conference room at, you knew exactly when the helicopter was going hither or yon. And it's very easy to get into this sort of comfortable bubble. And there's a lot of research on power, which also shows that people that have more power are less likely to be aware than people that have less power because people that have less power have to pay more attention. (laughs) You know, it's a very human thing. But if you're in a very powerful position, you're going to have to go out of your way to not have that become a blind spot. Yeah. And so you advocate that leaders ought to listen to the Cassandras in the organization and uh, even reward them or, or keep them on the speed dial. That's a very difficult thing to do. It's a very difficult thing to be exposing yourself to these Cassandras. And I think, I guess the Cassandras are not, they're not the same as the naysayers, right? These are people that are actually very deeply concerned about the future of the organization. 
Yeah, your typical Cassandra in a corporate setting is somebody who's a subject matter expert on something. Your technologists, your scientists, your engineers, your whatever. And I love the story of my dad, which I tell a lot, which is in 1980, he went from Xerox and joined Kodak. And on his first day on the job, he sits across the desk from a guy named Tom Whiteley. And uh, Tom Whiteley has been, he's a Kodak lifer, right? He's been at the Emulsion Research Laboratory, which makes the film, the chemistry that goes into the film forever. And he says to my dad, what do you think of the future of this? Now, remember, my dad had come from Xerox. So he'd actually visited the future at Xerox Park. And he says, oh, it's totally clear. Digital is going to replace film. Imaging is going to go to digital. Eight millimeter film has already had it. La, la, la. Lays it all out. And Whiteley kind of looks at him. This is 1980. And remember, Kodak had, I think, the second most valuable brand in the world. They could have done anything they wanted to. They were printing money. So Whiteley kind of looks across the table at him. He goes, thank you for your comment. Would you please go back to the labs where you can do minimal damage? Mm. And I remember years afterwards asking my dad, I said, didn't it bother you that you saw this so clearly? And nobody was taking any action. And he said, no, it didn't bother me. He said, yeah, I'm a scientist. I'm a researcher. He asked my opinion. I gave him my opinion. He's management. What he does with it is his problem. (laughs) And I think we so often overlook this. Like we assume that somebody that sees something that could could be a pending disaster is going to be like throwing themselves across the train tracks to stop the oncoming train. The people that see it often don't feel they have the mandate. They often don't have access. They don't have the ear. They're not necessarily trusted. They're often in some remote part of the organization. So it does take some effort to ferret them out. Now, you use this term crescive leadership. I I hadn't seen this term before. What is this? Actually, it was invented by some colleagues of mine who were doing a a meta-analysis of leadership models. And they found you have leaders that are collaborative leaders and leaders that are command and control. And and then there was this, there were four categories that they thought of. And there was this fifth category that they couldn't figure out. And the crescive leader was someone who created structures but didn't tell people what to do, allowed emergent structures to arise, allowed emergent information to arise, guided, but did not dictate the conversation. And what we see today is that's the kind of leader that we're very often hungry for. So somebody like a Reed Hastings at Netflix. I remember reading about Sheryl Sandberg. They had an agreement and she followed him around all day. And at the end of the day, couldn't help herself. Said, I followed you all day long and you did not make a single decision. Oh, he said, oh, absolutely. If I have to make the decision, something in our culture has gone terribly wrong. Yeah. Think about that. That's interesting. We have to talk about education. And education goes, I think, along with recruitment and hiring, because you say that you want to hire for learnability, right? That's the attribute that you're looking for. And so I'm wondering if on the flip side, we're in the business of producing the people that are being recruited by these companies. Are we doing a good enough job? Where are we, first of all, in terms of producing people that are these new types of leaders? And then secondly, if we think about the business model of education, where, where is this business model headed? Because it seems like the business model of education hasn't changed a whole heck of a lot in the last, oh, I don't know, a couple centuries. And are we, are the leaders of our educational organizations failing to see these, these leading indicators or are they seeing the leading indicators and just deciding not to create the the kind of flexibility in the organization that would allow it to respond to these leading indicators. So I've done some research on this and people have been predicting the death of the business school for at least 25 years. So, uh, and probably longer on than that. It's one of these where you have a lot of criticism. People like Henry Mintzberg, for example, has a big diatribe about managers, not MBAs. I think we need to go back and look at jobs to be done. So a typical MBA program is done by a student for a couple of different reasons. One is the whole building a social network 
work, right? So creating the conditions under which they build social capital. And that's very valuable. And I mean, that has nothing to do with what goes on in the classroom. But as Marissa King will tell you, we get them in a physical place. They share a common bond. They're engaged in similar activities. We try to bring in diverse points of view so they get diversity in their network. So there's a huge kind of create my social capital part of the job of business schools, education in general, undergrads. They're coming for the coming of age experience, the, the, the social thing. Then there's the transmission of knowledge job. And I think one of the things we don't think about enough is that this isn't, and I'll go back to, again, people have been predicting the end of education. They predicted it when radio first started. They predicted it when television came in, then the movies, and all of these things were going to destroy education as we know it. I think where we're missing the plot, and this is a point that Michael Schrag from MIT makes, is educators are really about creating capability. It's not about taking the theorem and handing it to you, and now you know how to calculate this result. It's about understanding why you're calculating that result and what it's going to help you to do and who else cares about that result. So it's really about capability creation. And I think when you start to think of education that way, you begin to see there's a lot of things we could be doing a lot better. And there's this tension between STEM and the liberal arts and these kinds of things. And now you need both. You need to be able to do stuff and, and make an outcome happen. But you also need to be able to motivate it and understand why you're doing it and to whom it matters. And I think it has to be looked at as more of a gestalt. Now, business model-wise, I think we're in real trouble. The couple of things are happening that are very real and that will have a big impact on the way we manage higher education. So the first thing is it's become a luxury good. You know, that the levels of student debt are ridiculous. The fact that it's a gating factor to a better future means people pay a lot more than they really should have to. So I think that's a really burden that certainly the millennial generation is bearing. Secondly, we're going to start to see credentialing at a level other than that of the degree. And so right now we have what I call a degree stranglehold. You have to have a BA, a four-year degree, to have access to an awful lot of jobs. If I could actually detect whether you had the skill to do that job or not, then I'm going to be a lot less fussed about having to pay you for a four-year degree. I can pay you what the job is worth. I don't have pay inflation on the one hand and degree of inflation on the other, which serves a lot of people very badly. So something like what Google is doing with, I think it's called Google at Work, where it's very rigorous. So out of 100 people that enter this program, maybe 10 will actually succeed. But those 10 are really good. They've passed all the hurdles. They've done all that they need to do. And an employer who sees that now can say, I don't care if this kid doesn't even have a high school degree. He can do UX design or whatever it is that, that Google's putting them through. So I think we're starting to see a lot more receptivity to that. And I think the pandemic, of course, is thrown into vivid public display. What are universities really for? Because, you know, the complaints about the screen experience. So it's not about transmission of the equation. It's about all these other things. So I think we're going to see a great unbundling. History teaches us that every major kind of trauma has led to some kind of revolution in education. And I think, I don't know what that is yet, but we're certainly starting to see a lot more shift in models, a lot more acceptability of things that never used to be okay. And an awareness for a lot of schools, the price we're asking students to pay is not the value that they're getting. You also mentioned uh, executive education, and you're an active educator in that space. And you say this, I think you would probably agree, continues to offer uh, value for, for executives and leaders. What do we need to do in that space to improve the, the learning and create better leaders? Well, executive education also has these two functions, right? So there's the function of meeting other people, learning from each other, learning from people who aren't in your industry. So there's that, that being part of the group function. And then there's also the capability building function, which is what you really come for. So I think a couple of things, I think we're highly likely to see exec ed moving forward in a hybrid way. So certainly at Columbia, I know this is familiar to my other colleagues. We're learning that we can reach people we could never get in our classrooms. So people from not-for-profits or people who couldn't travel. We're learning that there's a lot you can do in this format that's very effective, that it doesn't have to be a less good experience because it's virtual. And in fact, I can get a more intimate relationship with my 
class than I can if I'm a spec on a stage and there's 200 of them. And I can do things like make sure those quiet people get called on and make sure that the people who are, who tend to talk a lot, it's like, wait a minute, I'm going to put you on mute, mute just for a minute. And that's hard to do in a classroom. Right. So I actually see huge opportunities in exec ed. Now, an interesting question is going to be, is that going to be through universities or is it going to be through some other thing? So if I remove the need to be in a physical place and I want to take the very best course on the planet and I'll make this up ecosystems or something, why wouldn't I take the course that's offered by the, the well-known professor who's coined the phrase ecosystems and knows all about it? Why would I take all my courses at, say, Columbia or Michigan? or somewhere. Why wouldn't I just go to that? So I think you will start to see a bit of a star system emerge in this exec ed space. And an interesting early signal of this is what Scott Galloway is doing, which is he's uh, he's got a company, a venture-funded company now called Section 4. And they're doing this blend of in-person and online courses at an affordable price. They call them sprints. So they're not a full-blown MBA kind of thing. But if what you want to do is freshen your skills, you can afford it, it's less demanding, and then maybe you decide to go and get an MBA. So I think we're going to see a lot of differentiation in different flavors of how what we do becomes alive in the world. Yeah. And I think as he argues, this can be seen as a compliment rather than, than mm-hmm. a pure substitute for existing mm-hmm. programs. Okay. Last question. Whenever I teach strategy, corporate strategy, I realize that a lot of things that I say about corporations can apply to individuals. Every individual is essentially managing a, an enterprise and every individual has to think about their competitive advantage. And I think a lot of individuals in their career path are, are trapped in the same fictional belief that you establish your, your core competency and then you amortize it for 40 years and try to fight to make sure it stays relevant rather than adapting what you do to uh, the changing environment. How does an individual in their career know that there's something to be done? How do they know? What are the leading indicators for an individual in their career so that they know that, that they need to retool? If you're not learning, that's a big red flag to me. If every day starts to look like every other day and you're not trying anything that's that's a stretch for you or new for you, that's a, a strong signal that you're not, you know, you're risking obsolescence. I think that's one. Second one is if you're going through the motions and your heart's not really in it anymore, even if you are learning, but it's like, for example, I have a member of my team who's just struggled with technology just in general and has been banging away at it and it's just not her thing. And I'm like, let's get you on a path that might lead to something else because this isn't it. Even if it's a challenge, that doesn't always mean it's a good thing, right? Sometimes you need to find a, a different path. So that's the second one. I think a third one is, uh, and this is an exercise I ask people to do all the time, which is pick a date five years in the future, let's say, and write about yourself from that date. And it's an admiring article, let's just say, that whatever your field is, that the requisite publication in your field would write. And in that article, it glowingly talks about the the courageous decisions that you made and the investments that you made. It talks about the health of your family. It talks about how you brought this thing and here you are today and this amazing stuff happened. And forcing yourself to do that can be so helpful because you're, what are we now, 2021? You say, where do I want to be in 2026? What would I want to have? What would that future me want to have done now? And that can be very liberating. Yeah. And then part of that means going back and getting more education. So Rita, thank you so much. This has been great. And I just want to remind everybody, check out these two books also. Your other great. two books, actually you have more than other two books, but but it's been a pleasure speaking with you and, and hopefully we'll run into each other soon sometime. That'd be fun. Well, nice to meet you. Thank you. Thank you for tuning in to the Unsiloed Podcast. If you enjoyed today's episode, please give us a five-star rating and review. To listen to other episodes, please visit our website at www.unsiloedpodcast.com. Thank you.